1961, uh, our family traveled back from Sacramento, California, where my dad had served for three years at one of the Air Force bases uh, there in California. And we came back to the farm in which my mom grew up on, um, and I lived on until I went off to the military um, at 18. And uh, so from 1961 till my mom died in February of 1973, we had a garden in the backyard. And when I say a garden in the backyard, it was anywhere from 25 to 30 rows of a garden. It was not just a few rows. It was a huge garden. And my aunt Opal that lived across the road and my aunt Maud that lived on the side of us, uh, the right side of us, they both had gardens that were bigger than ours. We just didn't have enough backyard to have any more. I think my mom wanted to plant every vegetable seed that there could be possible could be planted. Um, and so every year I would have to um, hitch up Blackie, our mule, to the hand plow, and we would plow these rows up to plant the seed in the ground. Blackie knew four commands. Some of you that have done a mule know what those are. G, haul, woe, or go. So those are the four commands that Blackie knew. Um, and so my mom, when we, everything was prepared, she would go to Fonville's Seed and Feed in Tabor City, and she would buy the seed that we were going to plant in the garden. And every year, she planted pole beans. So pole beans are bushes you put, usually we would use tobacco poles or tobacco sticks uh, for uprights, and you string, string between them so that the vines could grow in the string, and that's why they were called pole beans. This one year, I'll never forget it, I have no clue what Fonville gave my mom in seeds. They were pole beans, but these pole beans were huge. They took over several rows of the garden. You couldn't even walk down the row and pick the beans like you normally do with pole beans. And those were just unequivocally just huge, just bushes that were beyond measure, literally took up that whole section of the garden. Our parable today is about an unusual growth, an unusual bush uh, that Jesus talks about. And so I thought about that as I was reading this text this week, that one time that our garden turned into almost a disaster. So Jesus in this 13th chapter, as he is giving these Kingdom parables, kingdom of heaven parables. There are seven of them. And last week or two weeks ago, we looked at the sower and the soils. And then last week, we looked at the tares and the wheat. And this week, we're going to look at the parable of the mustard seed that is in verse 31 and 32. And so as you're turning there, before I read, 
a few years ago, I preached about the mustard seed. And it was from Matthew 17, 20. I want to read that verse. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, I truly say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. So that day that I preached on that verse, I don't know if you remember, but I handed out mustard seeds. Everyone got a mustard seed. Well, that day in the service, Bruce and Alice Chase were here from Texas. And Bruce took that seed back to Texas. And here's what he did with it. He planted it, and that is a mustard bush. He sent that picture to me and said, Look, Marty, I planted your seed you gave us in worship, and here's what happened. And so I kept that picture on my phone, and I wanted to show you that picture of the mustard seed bush that Bruce and Alice, and Alice is no longer with us, um, but it grew not into a tree. We're going to talk about a tree today, but it grew into a mustard plant. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, it'll be on the screen. If you don't, uh, this is verse just 31 and 32 of this 13th chapter in Matthew. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than any or all other seeds. But... When it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plant and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds this morning what you would hold for us through this, your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. As I mentioned, Jesus has been teaching these kingdom parables, and the first one we looked at was the sower, and the seed was sowed on four different soils. And as you remember, three out of the four did not come to fruition the way that they should. Only the fourth, or one-fourth, that soil that was uh, good and nurturing did the seed grow and produce the fruit like it should, Jesus said. And he reminded us in that parable that the seed was the word of God. And then last week we looked at the tares and the wheat and Jesus says, the son of man, in other words, me, I'm the one that planted the seed in my field and the, and, and the seed grew and at night, he said, the devil came and planted seed among the good, and it grew. And if you remember the story, the workers came to him and said, oh, do you want us to go pull up the, the tares, go pull up the weeds? And he said, no, let them remain until the harvest. 
And then when we harvest the good and the tares, the wheat and the tares, then we will separate them and the good, the wheat, will receive the reward. In other words, he said those who are faithful, who have been faithful, will receive the reward from the Son of Man, but the tares will be gathered, they will be bound, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. And then we come to this parable following the explanation of the tares and the wheat. And Jesus, again, uses a parable of farming, the planting of a seed. And this seed, he says, is the tiniest in all of Judea. And so I want to look at this in three sections this morning. And the first section is we see the kingdom start small, this seed, this mustard seed. Now, the text says that it's the smallest seed of all. Jesus is talking about the smallest seed in the Judean area. It is not the smallest seed that has ever been created, but there is this seed, this mustard seed, that was commonly thought of as the smallest seed in all of Israel. How small was it? I'm glad you asked. The mustard seed is only one millimeter in diameter. And Elizabeth will put it on the screen in a hand. It takes about 750 seeds to equal one gram. A gram is 128th of an ounce. And so if you do the math, 750 times 28 will tell you how many seeds it takes to make one ounce. And that is over 21,000 seeds to make one ounce of mustard seeds. And so Jesus is teaching, and they know in Israel, they know those that are around listening to him teach, and he says, a mustard seed, a mustard seed, the man plants, and it's small. It's the smallest in all of your land. And so God's kingdom starts small. Now, This should seem odd to us, right? If the kingdom of God is this small, starts this small, and we think about God being so big, you remember the story I told a few weeks ago, and I won't tell it, but the preacher had said, God is so so big, he can hold the whole world in his hands. We think about a God that big, creator, God, we think it's strange that The kingdom of God starts out as a mustard seed that it takes 21,000 of them to make an ounce. It probably seems strange to the disciples and to those that were sitting there listening to him teach that day. Because here Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven has now come in him. The kingdom is here. The kingdom has arrived. And they look and say, well, wait a minute. Jesus has been traveling. Um, There's just us 12 and a few other disciples, a few followers that have been around. Yes, there are numbers of people now coming out to hear him teach, to hear him preach, listening to him. But 
you know, the kingdom really is made up of Jesus and a bunch of unschooled fishermen. And they were pretty insignificant compared to those of the Roman allegiance, the soldiers, the legions of soldiers that were around that held everyone basically captive for Rome to make sure that everything was done the Roman way. And so the kingdom of God starts small, but that's okay. It is really okay because you see, even with the smallness of the start of the kingdom of God, God is still in charge. And God is not interested in flash or show. God is interested in changing people's hearts and changing them one at a time. One person at a time. God doesn't always seek the brightest and the best. God will seek those all that are sinners, and he will seek those who need a savior. And he said, I didn't come to seek the righteous, those that are well, but to seek those that are lost. And so the marginalized, the ostracized, the weak, the outcast, the broken, the brokenhearted, God is seeking them. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in the first chapter, verses 26 through 9, 29. Listen to what he says. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to, sh to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Another time Jesus was talking to his disciples and Luke records in the 12th chapter and 32nd verse, do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom of heaven. And so God's kingdom is about growing up in faith. It's about starting small, humble beginnings. It's about finding God's call in your life, where you're at, where you're at, and as he calls, and as we surrender, we become part of the kingdom of God. Imagine that there are people all over our area that maybe do not take a second look at the church or at faith or at God. But God says, look, no matter how small the beginning is, I'm in it, I'm part of it, and watch what I do with those small beginnings. Christianity is like a mustard seed. It is like a mustard seed. We start with that childlike faith and we begin to grow up in our faith.
that little seed that God plants begins to grow inside of us. And oh, what God can do. There was a teenager that left the city of London and he was going out to his church, but it was an evening service. It had, it had been a terrible weather that day. In fact, it was said to be a blinding snowstorm. And he was unable to get to his church, but there was a small Methodist chapel on the way. And so he turned into this chapel and went inside to worship the Lord. Unfortunately, the pastor of this Methodist chapel could not make it either for worship that night. And so one of the lay members of the church arose and said, Well, let me read a verse and expound on it, and we'll sing a closing hymn, and then we'll all get home before the weather gets any worse. And so this layman got up and spoke this verse from Isaiah. Look unto me and be saved to all the ends of the earth. Well, this young teenager that was there that night heard this verse. And for the first time, he said his heart was stirred by the Spirit of God. Who was this teenager that was in the chapel that evening? His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who later shook England for the faith. Thousands upon thousands came to faith from his teaching and preaching. As a 20-some-year-old, he built a 5,000-seat auditorium for a sanctuary, and it was never big enough to hold the crowds that would come and hear him preach from the Bible, God's Word. And it all started from one verse, a seed planted by a layman, in a chapel on a Sunday night that a teenager was filled and the Spirit of God began to move in his life. A whole lot can come from a seed. And Jesus said, the seed that is planted is my word and I'm the one that does the planting you know, a lot has come from that small planting of a seed. Think about, and we're fixing to celebrate this, that the beginning of Christianity happened in a manger in a stable in Bethlehem. Just from a small, small place in a stable with animals. And then this seed that grew, Jesus Christ that became the Messiah, who was the Messiah, who was the Christ, the one who was to come and change the world, chose 12 men, unlearned for the most part, 
who knew nothing about faith or Christianity or much of all. But these 12 turned the world upside down. They turned what was known world upside down. These seeds planted small made a difference in the world. Today we teach our children and we, we plant seeds in our children and our grandchildren and our hope is, is those seeds will come to maturity and those children will come to faith and they will surrender their life to God. They will come knowledgeable of sin and Savior and salvation and what that means in their life. That's our hope. That's our prayer for all of our children and our grandchildren, of our friends and our family. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it yet. In other words, you start off with this small seed that begins to grow because God in his word gives us an understanding of who he is. The Hebrew writer 5.13 says, For everyone who partakes not only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for they are an infant in the faith. 1 Peter 2.2, Like newborn babies long for pure milk of the word so that you may grow up in respect to your salvation. And so it starts small with that seed of call that God plants in our life through the preached word so that we begin to grow up in our faith in him. And that leads us to the second part. The second is those seemingly and surprisingly that seed starts small, kingdom of God starts small, it will grow into what is larger. In this case, Jesus says in verse 32, though the smallest seed of all, yet it grows, it grows large into a garden plant that becomes a tree. This is unexpected. Those that were listening to him knew what a mustard bush was. They knew what a mustard plant looked like. They knew what it would grow into. And here Jesus is saying, but wait a minute. This seed is going to grow into a tree. It's going to become surprisingly big. It's going to have branches where birds can come and rest and make their nest. This bush that became a tree was abnormally big, uncharacteristically different than anything that they would have ever seen. It stood out among the others, similar to what my mom's pole beans did. It stood out among the garden because it was unusual, surprisingly big, and indeed, this was the example that Jesus was using in a parable story to talk about the kingdom of God. Many that were there that day would understand this idea of a tree and the meaning of a tree. If you go to Daniel 4, and I'm not going to read Daniel 4, you can read that later. But Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that 
this, uh, he thought of himself as a domineering, a dominant tree within the kingdom. And often Daniel would say, hey, let me point out that the God of heaven has only allowed you to become great, but the God of heaven also can cut you down. Ezekiel 31 talks about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh was challenged because he looked at himself as a tree among other nations. And he was cautioned in that by Ezekiel, saying, wait a minute, watch these other Assyrian leaders and rulers, because if you look at yourself as this huge tree that towers over everything else, where everyone can come and rest under your branches, you can be overthrown. You can be cut down. In the ancient world, it was not unusual for the tree to be a symbol of domination, a symbol of the Roman government, the Mesopotamian government, the Assyrian government, they were looked at as these huge entities that everyone else would have to rest under. And so Jesus uses this understanding of this small seed that grows up and now becomes something unusual. It becomes unusually large, a tree. And we look at the church over the last 2,000 years, and the church has done just that. The church has grown over time to a point where at the turn of the 20th century, from the 19th century, it was said that you couldn't go into a town and there not be a church on a corner. Or you couldn't go out into the regions of America and not find almost at every crossroads or every intersection there would be some church that had been planted. It was said that 92% at the turn of the century, the 20th century, not the 21st century, 92% of Americans were Christians and between 80 and 90% would be in church on Sunday mornings. How about that? The church grew. The church flourished. And we see today that the church, God is still using the church to proclaim his word, and you would say, but Marty, you keep saying there's churches, you know, hundreds of churches closing every year, thousands of churches closing every year. You keep talking about the authority of Scripture that is being dwindled down, standards and God's moral standards being set aside, and yes, I mention that often, and that is happening. Satan hates what the church is about and what the church is doing, and he is taking his place to try to knock it down. But I will tell you that God's church is on the move. God's church is on the move worldwide. There are many places that the church is being persecuted, and it is growing at exponential numbers around the world. Here in America, 
guess what? We are now the place that Korea, South Africa, other nations are sending their missionaries to America to preach the gospel, to win people for Christ. Think about that. God is on the move. And God is refining the church for himself. Peter talks about the refining fire that takes the, the dross, burns it away, takes it, and makes it into what it needs to be. Satan hates the work of the church. Satan hates when the church and the gospel is being promoted and when people are coming to Christ. But God is on the move. God is using his church, his true church, to continue to spread the gospel. And that brings us to the last piece of this passage. And Jesus in the last part of verse 32 says, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. I will guarantee you that you, most of you have heard this as a preaching of peace, coming to rest under the branches. Um, you're, you're not going to hear me say that this morning because I want to give you a, a another view of what Jesus is saying and I want to give it to you because of what we have been studying in these parables of the kingdom of God and so the birds that come to rest think about it from the perspective that Jesus has been teaching do you remember what happened, what the birds were that came in the parable of the sower? They came and took up the seeds. They ate up the word of God. These were not good birds. These were birds that were taking away. You, you get to the parable of the tares and the wheat. And, and Jesus says that the seed that was planted came up among the good. And you remember I said, we are living right in the midst of all that is around us that is sinful, the fallen. God has said, you're going to dwell with, and by the way, as I mentioned then and will mention now, we are called to proclaim to those around us that are lost. But we are growing up with the, the birds of the air around us that are part of us. And in this parable... Jesus uses birds. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I know scripture talks about doves and eagles being good things, righteous, and you're right. But more often than not, the birds of the air are equated in scripture to Satan or the devil or his demons. The birds in verse 32b that come into the tree and build their nest, 
we need to take a look at from that perspective of what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 13. And so if you go back to verse 4 and you go back to the explanation in verse 19, you see that the fowl represent the devil, represent those that are pulling the, the, the seed away, pulling away faith. Satan has planted his loons of free thinking, his crows of compromising, his marlins of postmodernism, his sparrows of deception in the very midst of the church. Probably a verse that would give us the most understanding would be Revelation, the 18th chapter in verse 2. And he cried out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. And so we, we can't get away from this understanding that our faith is growing up. We even grow up with these this, this huge trees that, yes, we can come and be a part of and we can be in and grow up into. But we have to be careful to see what Satan might plant or Satan might bring to rest within our own church. Jude 3 states, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. You contend earnestly for the faith which was once handed down to all the saints. Oswald Chambers states, the truest test of a saint's life is not successfulness, but faithfulness on the human level of life. Our faith is to grow and to live and to share in always in all things throughout this lost world. Inside the church as well. Satan is not stupid. Satan infiltrates the church with his tactics to pull us away, to try to get us to fail in our faith. He would have liked to have been a lion, but he became a serpent. He became the most deceitful, lying being in all of the world. And he has not ceased to attack us individually and to attack the church. And he does it today from within. He started in the garden. And then he started sowing tares among individuals. And now Satan is sowing his seeds of deception within the church. He is using men and women within the church to come 
and rest among our faith to water down the gospel, to bring about discipline that is relaxed, to keep us from wanting to keep us from growing in understanding of the world, of the word instead of the world. He wants us to use our carnal mind and wants it to become appealing. Instead of affections for things above, many within the church today have affections for things below. The gospel is being adulterated. And Satan is attacking the church. And though this seed that is small, that has grown to faith, that produces greatness in God, pseudo-Christianity is among its midst. And God has granted, God has allowed, as he did with Israel, as Israel wanted to be like all of the nations. Oh, just give us a king, God, so we can be like those around us. It's not going to work out well, people, but we want a king, God. Just give us a king. Okay, I'll give you a king, but I'm just telling you, this isn't going to work good. This is not going to turn out well for you. God has allowed. He has granted actually, these fleshly desires of an apostate church among the true church. And there are so many today that have bought in to this church that I would say is not the true church of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus repeatedly says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 is at hand, Jesus says. And we living as believers, we within the church, we who have um, held tight to our faith. You remember what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, hold tight to your faith. Hold tight. We have to hold tight to our faith because the predators are lurking at every turn to try to bend us, derail us, get our eyes off of Christ and on the world. But hear me, church. If you don't hear anything else this morning, God is on the move. God is on the move. And he has planted a seed in you if you're a believer for it to grow to fruition so that you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. So that the true church can flourish. Oh, I'm so excited for what the church called hope is going to grow into as God moves us forward. As God uses you and your gifts and your talents moving forward. For his purpose and his will. But be on guard. Satan is lurking. And he wants to derail us. Individually and corporately. 
But God is more powerful. God is stronger. And that tiny little mustard seed that grows into faith, that grows up into this huge tree that cannot be mistaken, is to be a light on a hill for Christ. That is the church. And that is the church that I want to be a part of. May it be so. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you remind us in this parable. In the parables, these three that we have looked at over these last three weeks, that there is good soil and there is growth that is happening. That you are the planter and, and you grow us and, and you help us through the power of your spirit, to be what you have called us to be. May we be pliable. May we be transformed, Father, into your likeness as the church. Father, may you use us. But in these three parables, we see that Satan is at hand. He will pluck those seeds off to the ground and off the rocky soil. Father, Satan will plant his seeds among us. He will even bring in to rest in the true church those that try to derail it, bring division. Help us to be watchful at all times, in all ways. Because, Father, I really do believe that we as a church called Hope want to live into the future that you have called us to for the purpose you have called us to changing the world one person at a time by your calling and salvation. May it be so. We pray this in your name.